AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So Matt, you have an article about hacking law firms by taking over abandoned domain names? Yeah, and to be fair, the article focuses on how you might do this and what the things you would find that would be specific to a law firm if you were to compromise one, but it really applies to anybody who's ever registered a domain name and used it for business purposes. Uh, so uh, a researcher, Gabor Zathmari, um, wrote this very long and detailed blog post with a whole bunch of screenshots of what he was able to achieve. Which was a lot. Which was a lot. So this particular researcher had found that you could get a list of the different domains in the .au top-level domain, which is Australia, and he was interested in seeing if he could receive the emails for legal firms who had let their domains expire. If he found one, he registered it, and he set up the MX record, which is how uh, email servers figure out where do I send mail for this domain, and he set it up a, sort of a general catch-all bucket for any email for the domain goes to a single email address and he waited. And what happens is if any of those email addresses are still receiving email um, from, say, uh, a business partner or notifications for a personal account or there, there are any number of things that might be still sent there, right. even though that domain name has expired, right. the people who have you on the list don't know that. So they'll still continue to send stuff. Um, and the, the sort of the scenario he, he posited was, what if your smaller law firm gets bought by another law firm, or they merge, and you decide to go with one brand name and you let the other ones expire? You may still have business contacts using the old domain and therefore sending email to the old email addresses. So what, essentially what, what you're doing is you're able to, to uh, see information that you otherwise shouldn't see. So the, the whole point of this article is that a domain name that is associated with business email really needs to be protected and kept much longer than that actual domain is in use. So like if you decide to go ahead and, and go off to another name, you probably want to keep that domain registered, the old one, right. because if anyone can receive email at that, you know, if they take it over and receive email there, they have the keys to a number of other different systems. And that could be, you know, if you've got like a professional service that you've signed up for and that username is associated with that hijacked domain, whatever password reset functions exist, you can use that to get into the system. And they showed it with several different Australian law um, websites yeah. that usually only lawyers should have access to right. for professional reasons. Right. Uh, you can just sort of, you know, take them over using the password reset. And that goes for things like Facebook or LinkedIn. Yeah. Just the sheer number of things that email is used as an identifier for demonstrates how dangerous this can be. Right, and those sites don't necessarily have like two-factor authentication turned on, so there's no text message going to somebody's phone. It's really just if you have control of the email, we're going to assume you're who you say you are, mm -hmm. which isn't always the case, as, right. we, as we just saw. The blog post itself has a lot of detail, a lot of screenshots showing what he was able to do. It's definitely sort of sobering if, you, if you're someone who manages domains for a company to see what's possible if someone else gets a hold of one. So the, the ways that they suggest that you handle this is really like the easiest way to deal with it, the one that costs the most money probably, is to continue to hold on to those domain names in perpetuity. Yeah. Um, for as long as you can to prevent this from ever happening. Now you can go ahead and sort of remove those business emails before you close out the domain and say, okay, you know, whatever list you're on, cancel, whatever Facebook or accounts are associated, either cancel or repoint them to a new domain. Do all that due diligence to make sure that once you're done, all the official accounts are taken 
to that new domain. But again, you might still receive professional email at the old domain because someone may have an old business card, may not be aware that you've changed names. There's all sorts of reasons that email might still yeah. you know, end up there, of course. which is why hanging on to the domains is probably the best method of dealing with this. Right. What do you think, Mike? Well, it's interesting because um, these types of domains also have a strong value for people that are conducting social engineering campaigns. Because if you were to Google search for any of these domains, there's all kinds of historical content out there. So anyone who is associated with that domain, who published an article, or if that domain was cited someplace in an article or a write-up or a professional profile, it gives the air of legitimacy to any kind of phishing or other social engineering type campaigns I'm going to use based out of that domain. So these things certainly have a lot of value in that respect as well. So from an individual's perspective, I think it would be important to remove your old law firm's email or your old company's email from say like a LinkedIn page or anything that's, that's on the internet that an attacker could then use to either initiate that reset password or use it for other purposes like social engineering or anything like that. So Mike, you've got a story about GhostScript. Yeah, this one was uh, pretty interesting, kind of caught my eye. Um, so a couple of years back in 2016, mm -hmm. there was a, a researcher uh, as part of Google Project Zero that found some flaws in uh, GhostScript. Um, that was a popular suite of tools um, that's used not only by itself, but is also embedded in a lot of other you know, libraries and systems and applications uh, that allow desktop software and web servers to be able to handle um, PostScript and PDF uh, page description languages. And this particular researcher uh, decided to revisit um, the product and found uh, several more um, bypass vulnerabilities um, that were disclosed here uh, recently. So he found that it was possible to craft malicious documents that uh, GhostScript would parse to cause remote code execution, among other different effects. And what that means is if you have a, a website or a, another system that accepts these files that GhostScript is intending to parse, uh, you can run whatever code you want on a vulnerable system, which is a big deal. The vulnerabilities are with GhostScript itself, but GhostScript is then embedded into these other applications and is used um, kind of as a module or, or a library. Um, and this is something that um, we've seen in other cases, right? Any kind of um, appliance for example, uh, that's based on a, you know, Linux base shell, if there's a, you know, operating system layer vulnerability that's announced, that vulnerability may very well impact that base operating system for that appliance, even though it's not running a full version of the kernel or a full distribution. And so you see this vulnerability get patched in one place, in this case, uh, the GhostScript um, application suite. Um, they've got patches that are available for these issues now. But for some of these other um, applications, such as ImageMagic or GIMP, those projects are going to need to take those patches, do remediation and regression testing, roll them into their updates, and then issue subsequent patches uh, for those products. And it's really all the same issue. A lot of companies will do a very good job of, of categorizing and cataloging the software that they use, not necessarily the libraries that that software relies upon. Um, this is probably going to be a challenge for the foreseeable future until someone comes up with a pretty good way of, of tracking all of those dependencies. So is this another example of a, a file format parsing bug? Because from what I understand, things like PostScript and PDF, like they're kind of involved. I know for a fact PDF is a very, very um, 
complex specification. There's things in there that I don't think a document should ever be able to do. Um, but it, it, the more complex the thing is you have to uniquely parse each one of, the harder it's going to be to nail to get it right every time. And I can see why vulnerabilities get introduced into libraries that are as complex as these. It does boil down to a parsing problem. Um, but really what it's doing is it's bypassing some of the security checks that are supposed to prevent these scripts from taking certain actions, like writing temporary files to certain areas of the disk or reading other files from, from off the disk, um, things along those lines. And because of this, um, what the researcher found was that you know certain permissions or certain types of security checks, which were built into GhostScript to prevent um, these security issues from being taken advantage of, just weren't effective. They weren't actually functioning, or you could cause a, uh, a runtime error to occur, and then as long as you captured the exception and continued working, that control didn't get um, reinstantiated once you had an initial failure. Uh, so there are some very you know, intriguing um, uh, examples that were, were cited by the researcher. I think this sort of brings up a little bit of a discussion, because the article mentions that uh, the researcher who discovered this actually suggests turning off some of these features because they're just kind of too bug-filled or or whatever it is, and you know you see that in other areas of of the industry, so to speak, where there's a security function in place, but it's not fully tested. It's not, uh, I would say, you know, battle-worn or anything, and so a lot of researchers, a lot of security people are like, well, maybe we should pull it. To, to continue the testing, mm -hmm. or is it better to keep it in place and just try and, and kind of work iteratively? You know, what, what's what's the opinion on that? I, I think it really depends on the environment that you're deploying it to. If you have some sort of way to mitigate the problem that's brought in by disabling the function, like if you have a WAF that can handle certain aspects of what you're disabling on the vulnerable device, maybe it's going to be okay. Um, but to put it out there by itself, and, and again, I hate saying it, but it depends. Um, really, it has to be sort of, you have to figure out what the risk is on a case-by-case -case basis. That's, that's my take on it. Yeah, I'd agree with that. All right, well, thank you very much for the story. So a solution for this, or a way to protect yourself, would be to install the patch. The patch has now been released. So Andy, did you see that article about uh, AT commands impacting mobile phones? I did, uh, that one was really interesting. Um, a group of researchers, uh, University of Florida, Stony Brook University, and Samsung Research of America um, have actually found that a large number of devices are vulnerable to AT commands uh, being pushed through USB. Mm -hmm. So for those who are uninitiated, how about you explain AT commands? Sure. So AT commands are, are a little bit of an old technology. They're short string commands that are meant to, to be pushed out to, to modems. Mm -hmm. um, typically they're used for like gathering kind of simple information, subscriber info, things like that. Uh, some phones actually use AT commands as a more general way to interface with the system as a whole. And you can access these commands or the, the, the terminal that accepts these commands simply by plugging in a USB cable to the phone. The list of commands was actually standardized a while back, but uh, vendors have actually implemented vendor-specific commands yep. uh, since then. And that's kind of where the problem lies. Um, so there's a lot of AT commands that are totally benign. They don't present any sort of major issue. It's these specific ones that can actually cause a problem. Mm -hmm. So the official list of what's possible may not be a complete list. 
And in some cases, there are commands for specific um, models of different manufacturers that allow you to do things like change the firmware. So it's a little bit scary. So the researchers actually found that they, you, you can push AT commands to these devices even if the device isn't in debug mode, mm. um, even if the device is locked. Uh, but it depends on, on the device itself. It depends on its firmware. Essentially, what the researchers did is they gathered a whole bunch of firmware images for a lot of uh, modern Android devices. Mm. Uh, and then they dug through the, that firmware looking for AT commands. They gathered, I think it was like 3,500, around 3,500 different AT commands. Wow. Um, they then took those commands and thought like an attacker and used some of them to um, bypass certain security controls on, on different devices. Um, some of the attacks were things like uh, bypassing a lock screen, um, fumbling with the firmware that's sitting on the device currently, um, exfilling data from like an SD card or something that's on the device itself. Mm. It's a lot of crazy stuff. They've got a list of the affected firmwares and devices as well. So do we know do. Are, are vendors rushing to, to disable these sorts of things or do we, what's the takeaway from this? The takeaway is that the researchers uh, notified all 11 vendors as uh, soon as they discovered what they had discovered. Um, they'd actually worked with those vendors to push out updates and patches. Okay. So the problem is, is very well known uh, and presumably has been addressed. Okay. Yes. I mean, I got to wonder, since this is Android we're talking about, we've talked about Android fragmentation on the show so many times, whether mm. most users will actually see the benefits of these patches. We know that with Android, there's always the fragmentation problem, so older devices may not get patches. Even newer devices, patching is sometimes a, a, not a, a given for some manufacturers. Uh, I do want to mention that in the article, that the researchers actually put up a, a website yep. that lists all the different uh, uh, devices, specific devices. So if you're concerned, you can go on and, and mm. check for your device. And then, you know, if you don't already, you should update regularly. Mm. What's interesting to me about this is that this isn't a bug. This is a full command set. Yeah. Correct. Right? This, this isn't like a, a quote unquote a vulnerability here. This is legitimate functionality. And it's really interesting to me how a legacy feature set, a legacy technology that kind of fell out of vogue and, you know, really is left, you know, awareness of most people is still there. And it's still operating as a basis in some cases of, of devices that we use every day. A lot of the, uh, the researchers actually mentioned that a lot of the commands that they were discovering in this firmware is completely undocumented. Uh, so it might just be a matter of, hey, we didn't think anyone would <laughs> anyone would find these things and, yeah. and actually use them. I, I mean, I, obviously, I don't I don't agree with that necessarily. Yeah, who, anyone who thinks that hasn't met reverse engineers. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> That's a good point. If you have the ability to patch, patch. If not, maybe uh, write a letter to your um, your manufacturer and ask them, hey, when are we going to get patched for this? Because this one's kind of important. So let's take a look at this week's internet weather. Taking a look at the most probed ports, the top 10. Uh, once again, 23 is in the top spot, that's Telnet. Uh, 445 is up one spot, that is SMB. Uh, 1911 is this Niagara uh, Tritium AX, which we believe is, is for um, HVAC systems and building control, stuff like that. Uh, 22 TCP is uh, SSH, 80 TCP is general web stuff. That's up four. Um, that might be a result of a re recent uh, Apache struts bug that came out. I can't really say because it's mostly flow related, but that's the big web vulnerability of the last week or so. So I tend to chalk it up to that. Uh, 1433 is Microsoft SQL Server. Uh, 
Um, 21 TCP is FTP, 81 TCP is a web port. Uh, I believe it has to do with a specific uh, IoT device. Um, 5555 is Android debug bridge. We've seen a lot of scanning of that for a long time. It comes in and out of the top 10. You can see it's up five spots this week. And the last one is 3389 TCP. That is remote desktop protocol. Now, in terms of the most sources probing, again, last one was most probes. This is most sources. This is. Um, more indicative of a botnet, whereas the previous slides would be more indicative of some, maybe a small handful of sources really hammering hard trying to scan the internet for those ports. So 445 is in first, 23 is in second, 8080 is in third. Uh, 8080, uh, again, is another one of those web ports that has a whole bunch of different things on it. I'm not really sure what this, uh, what puts it in, in the third place for this week. Um, could be anything. Uh, 5555 we talked about is Android Debug Bridge. 5431 is related to a Broadcom UPnP bug. So um, universal plug and play is sort of a feature that's supposed to be used on the inside of a network. And I guess some devices expose it to the outside and there is a vulnerability in that. Uh, 8081 again is another general web port. 80, another web port. 6881 is BitTorrent protocol. Um, which may or may not be result of scanning. Could just be a large number of, of BitTorrent users because the protocol is peer-to-peer. -peer. Right. A single host connecting to a bunch of peers may look like scanning. Uh, 80ICMP is echo request, so that's someone just scanning to see if hosts are listening, um, or just responding on ICMP. And then 81 TCP is another common web port. So taking a look at 443 TCP, which is server message block, SMB, uh, we actually had a, a bit of an uptick this week. I actually have taken a look at a, a longer term view of this. That spike on the right, you know, it kind of looks like it might be, if you're looking at the whole thing, it may not be obvious, but that actually is a, a jump of 10,000 extra scanners over what we're usually seeing here. So something's going on there. Uh, it might just be at the start of something big, but I can't say what. Uh, scan flows on Telnet. They seem to be, mm, I would say there's a usually a, like a daily cycle here. You're seeing a 60-day view, and um, not much of a change. You know, maybe it's a couple hundred, um, maybe a couple hundred million scan flows um, over time, but really it doesn't look like all that much to me at this point. Uh, port 8081, we've seen a pretty big uptick in the number of sources scanning that since uh, the 20th of August, and that just seems to continue to climb as we go. As for what vulnerability this is, um, there are a bunch of IoT botnets that might be responsible for this. I can't really say, but more, more likely than not, something to do with Satori or one of the, the common IoT botnets. Yeah. Uh, this 5431 makes its way into the top 10 every once in a while, and usually the reason why is that there's a certain spike, the certain cluster of devices that's scanning for it. Um, and I looked at them last time I was on the show. It's really just these two ISPs, um, one, both of which are US ISPs. And it might be related to a bug in Cisco Linksys devices. Broadcom makes a system on a chip that's used by a whole bunch of different uh, IoT vendors. Um, but it's their SDK that introduces the bug. That's why I'm calling it a Broadcom bug. Um, this Realtek SOAP thing, this 52869, showed up in one of our anomaly reports. Um, there is some interesting scanning going on here. Again, it's a Realtek bug. It's the same way that Broadcom's a system on a chip maker. Realtek also makes uh, chips for IoT devices. Uh, and their, their SOAP interface has a bug. So this was a big deal uh, back around the, uh, the 13th of the month. Um, seems to have not quite quieted down all the way. Um, there's, there's definitely 
uh, a population that's still scanning for this. So it might be that there's one of those bigger IoT botnets that's being you know, tasked and retasked between different vulnerabilities to try and build that population out. That's what I'm seeing from here. This week in internet weather, one thing that's really interesting is that we're still dealing with the Eternal Blue exploit and the WannaCry worm. Scanning to TCP port 445 is still at a high volume. I did talk about a particular bug that we were tracking sort of outside of the top 10 that had to do with Realtek uh, SOAP interfaces on certain devices. Uh, but other than that, we haven't had too much shakeup in a while. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.